When I was a teenager, uh, my best friend Mark was an incredibly gifted runner. In fact, he was probably at that time the best high school track athlete in our county. He had a number of records and, and that kind of thing. I never got into that. I would just run out of breath. That's all I ever did. If you, if you Google right now symptoms of a heart attack, you will find all the same things that happen to you when you run. So I just avoid it altogether. Shortness of breath, chest pain, impending doom. So I just stay away. But he was, he was a, an excellent runner. And we had another mutual friend named Andrew who was also uh, a pretty decent runner who went to a different, at that time it was middle school, I guess, really. He went to a different middle school. And it just so happened that a day came when Andrew and Mark were going to run against one another in the hurdles. And Mark was lightning fast. And he was confident and had no doubt that he would win the race. And Andrew was quick. And Andrew had a big mouth. So for weeks, Andrew trash-talked Mark every chance he had. And just every opportunity he would get, he would run Mark down and talk about how he was going to meet Mark in this race. In fact, he was so serious about beating Mark in that track meet that he actually, as a teenage boy, actually shaved his legs to cut down on drag. And I just want you to know, church, that if you're a teenage boy and you are in a sport that makes you shave your legs, even if you win, you've already lost, all right? But the day, the day finally comes, and I had, been, I had been wrapped up in this competition for so long that I, I wanted to go watch them race. So I went to Liberty Middle School in Morganton, North Carolina, when the Liberty Knights ran against the Table Rock Falcons, and I went to watch this track meet. And they, the first race was the hurdles. I don't remember how many meters or yards or feet or however they do that, but because, you know, I don't care about track. But uh, they, they get ready to run the race. They get down in their position. You know, they get on their short shorts and all this stuff. And the, the referee or umpire or judge, whoever he is, the guy with the gun pulls the trigger, bam, and they're off. And Andrew comes out of the gate killing it until he gets to the first hurdle. And then the first hurdle nearly killed him. Because as fast as he was going, he did not get over the hurdle. And then his silky smooth shaven legs looked like hamburger meat where he had crashed on that track. And sure enough, he did not finish the race and Mark won the race. You know, uh, I'm sure, that all of us have hurdles in our spiritual lives, don't we? There are things that come up along the way that have the potential to trip us up and to leave us laying on, the back, laying on our back, staring up at the heaven thinking, what in the world happened? Today, as we continue studying the book of Galatians, we are going to look at two specific hurdles that the Apostle Paul is going to present to us that every Christian has to deal with. Every one of us today will face both of these hurdles, and we have to get over both of them. The first one is the hurdle of confusing the gospel. And we confuse the gospel when we think that we earn God's blessings by our performance. And we know that we have been tripped up over this hurdle when our hearts are constantly filled with doubt or fear or insecurity, when we find ourselves motivated not by gratitude, but motivated by guilt or motivated by pride. We know that we've confused the gospel when we long for acceptance and when in our relationships we alternate between looking up to people thinking, why can't I be more like them? And looking down on people thinking, why aren't they more like me? One of the hurdles we need to be aware of is confusing the gospel. But there's another hurdle you need to be aware of today. And that's kind of the opposite hurdle and it's the hurdle of abusing the gospel. And we abuse the gospel when we start to believe Jesus loves us so much that it really doesn't matter how we live or what we do. And there are some people that really seem to believe deep down in their hearts that Jesus came to die so that we could have all of the sin and none of the guilt. 
The Apostle Paul is going to warn us about both of those hurdles in this passage of Scripture, beginning in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 1, as he wants us to see that Jesus did not come to make us slaves. And what his point is, is this. Jesus did not come to make us slaves, either to religious performance, that's trying to earn God's approval, or to outright immorality that does not care about God's approval. Jesus did not come to make us slaves to religious duties or to selfish desires. Look with me in Galatians chapter 5. Let's stand if you're able and willing. Let's honor the Word of God and hear what God says to us. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 1. Paul writes and says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, That if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to everyone who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you? Who tripped you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you, you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You can be seated. I trust the Lord to help us today. As we've studied the book of Galatians the past four or five weeks together, You've seen, I'm sure by now, that the book of Galatians is a book that is very, very deep in its doctrinal content. And the doctrine that is uh, being debated here of the book of Galatians is the doctrine essentially of how can I and how can you, how can we know that we are right with God? How can we know that we are accepted by God? And the Apostle Paul is making the case that we are accepted before God based totally on the work of Jesus. Not because of anything we've done but all because of everything he's done. But as the Apostle Paul deals with this doctrinal issue in the church, it's clear that the Apostle Paul also is worried about the relational fallout that is coming because people are confused about doctrine. And you can see it there, can't you? Right there in verse 15, the last verse we read, as he says, if you bite and devour one another... Take heed that you're not consumed with one another. He sees a church that is fussing, and he sees a church that is fighting, a church that's nipping at one another's heels and starting to damage the relationships that make up that church family. And that is an important point we need to know from the Bible, that if we get the gospel right, then we will treat other people right. And one of the best places we can tell, to look to, to see whether or not we've got the message of Jesus right in our hearts, is to how we interact with other people. If we're good to them, if we love them, if we serve them, that's a good indication that we understand the message of Jesus. But if we're mean, if we're abusive, if we're proud or even insecure, then that's a good indication that somehow we've missed something about the gospel. But just imagine what it would be like. Imagine what it would be like to go back and sit in the pews in the church of Galatia, to walk the halls with these people, 
Think about the relationships and the dynamics that were at play here. On the one hand, you've got the people who had come into Galatia teaching the false doctrine that people had to be circumcised and believe in Jesus to be right with God. And initially they come in as outsiders, but pretty quickly they are celebrated as the people who have the magic formula for how to be closer to God. And at first they're outsiders, but very quickly they are celebrated. They are people that are put on stage. They are people that are given a lot of prominence and a lot of authority. And there are other people in the church that want to impress these important teachers. And so right away, they run out and they go get circumcised. They hear this message on Sunday morning, you need to be circumcised to be right with God. Monday morning, they're at the doctor's office getting it taken care of. Now, I'm going to tell y'all, I've had some people over the years that have wanted to impress me because I was their pastor. But that's taking it a little bit far, all right? We're not going there. But you can see how these people who've done this, now they come back to church after, you know, the soreness heals up. They come back to church and they say, you know, we need to pray for these people around here that aren't as committed as we are. These other people aren't willing to sacrifice what we're willing to sacrifice to be right with God. We need to pray for some of these folks. And then you've got those other folks, right, who aren't buying into the circumcision thing or maybe who aren't entirely sure. And so they look down on themselves thinking, well, where do I fit in? Where, where do I belong? I don't want to be treated like I'm second class because I'm not buying into this doctrine. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you didn't belong in a church? Have you ever felt like you weren't wanted? Have you ever felt like you weren't welcome? Have you ever found yourself looking around a church building maybe thinking that some of these other folks don't belong? Some of these other people don't really love Jesus as much as you do. Those are the dynamics that Paul is dealing with here in the text so much so that I think one of the main verses in the book of Galatians is not so much about doctrine as it is about their relationships. It's at the very end of Galatians 5. If you have your Bible open, look at Galatians 5, 26. Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You had both of those things happening in the church. People were looking down on some, but looking up to others. And so Paul comes into this and says, listen, this is only happening because you've got the gospel wrong. What I want us to do today is I want us to look kind of beneath the surface of the troubled relationships in the church of Galatia. And I want to look into the heart of this church, the heart of these people, and see how they had confused the gospel message itself. We'll look more at the dynamics of the relationship, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. But today, I want to look at the confusion. In particular, I want to look at the slavery that Paul says these people are falling back into. And I want to show you how we confuse the gospel, how we get tripped up over these hurdles, and how you and I fall into the same traps that they did in Galatia as we confuse the gospel and abuse the gospel. So let me give you three principles today as we talk about freedom and tyranny. The first principle I would give you is that freedom, true spiritual freedom, means understanding that I am not working for salvation, but I am waiting for salvation. True spiritual freedom means I know that I am waiting for salvation, not working for it. Now, Paul comes out of Galatians chapter 4 where he's talked about the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. And he talks about how God had brought Isaac, the son of promise, into the world and how there had been this kind of fleshly decision that Abraham made that brought the son of the slave woman into the world. And Paul comes screaming in Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 1 and says, Christ has set us free so that we would be free. That's the point of Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Jesus did not liberate us from our sin. And Jesus did not liberate us from the curse of the law just so we could fall back into a different kind of slavery and a different kind of bondage. Jesus makes people free. And thank God that he does. 
But the Apostle Paul knows that just like a nation that is politically free could lose that freedom over time due to many different reasons, so too Christians who have been made free in Jesus, if they're not careful, they could trade away that freedom for a million different things. And so Paul says, I do not want to see you fall back into a yoke of slavery and a yoke of bondage. Now what fascinates me about this is that if I know the story of the book of Galatians, then I know that the slavery the Galatians are, are going into is not the same kind of slavery they're coming out of, right? They, before they knew Jesus, they were slaves to idols, they were slaves to paganism, and slaves to immorality. But now they're being seduced into the slavery of Judaism and religion and moralism. But these people would have understood something about slavery that you and I probably don't understand because they actually, some of them were slaves, some of them knew slaves, they interacted with slaves in their society. And so they knew something that you and I may not grasp, and that is this. Just because a slave is a slave to Mr. Jones and not to Mr. Smith, he's still a slave. And Paul's saying, you can be a slave to religious moralism or you can be a slave to absolute immorality, you're still a slave. And so Paul's getting deep into our hearts to confront us with this point. And I want you to get this today, that there are many ways you can be a slave, but there's only one way to be free. There's all kinds of slavery in this world. You can be a slave to your performance sitting in a church, or you can be a slave to your passions, never darkening the doors of a church, but you're still a slave. And regardless of whether you are a slave with a blue mohawk and nose piercings, or you are a slave with a bus cut and a suit and a tie, if you don't know Jesus, you are a slave. And He is the only way that you can be free. He is the only way that you can be free. Because apart from Jesus, any life that's not built upon Jesus, you're still going to have sin that change you. You're still going to have guilt that binds you. You are still going to be desperate for the approval of other people so that you are enslaved to what they think about you. The only way to be free in this life is to know Jesus who makes men free indeed. That's the only way to be free. And Paul tells us that. There are a lot of ways you can be slave. You can be slave to chemicals, you can be slave to the approval of other people, you can be a slave chained to your desk at your job, or you can be a slave chained to your performance in church. But without Jesus, you are bound. But with Him, thank God, no matter what kind of slave we have been, we can be free. He does not discriminate in the kinds of people that He liberates. And we see this kind of slavery everywhere. We can see it probably in the grind of somebody who believes they are trying to earn their approval before God based on things they do at church or in some other religion. But I would encourage you to think deeper about it and tell you just to think that there are people that really are in the same kind of religious slavery that don't believe there is a God at all. They've still got rules. They've still got the threat of exclusion from people who belong. And they've still got the threat of coming judgment. Did you realize that's why you can't buy a plastic straw in the state of California anymore? They've got the rule in place because judgment is coming. You keep the rules, you can avoid judgment. The great fireball apocalypse is upon us. And the only way we can save ourselves and redeem mankind is by keeping the rules. You know what that is? That's religious slavery. Paul says, look around you. The world is enslaved. But over against that, what do Christians have? Paul, what do we have? He says, we have absolute, unending, unfailing, thrilling, shocking, scandalous freedom. Paul says, Christ makes us free. Imagine what it would be like today to have a spiritual freedom that assured you in your heart that you would never face the consequences of your sins. Imagine what it would be like to have the freedom to know that you could actually resist the desires in your heart 
that you have come to hate. Imagine what it would be like to have the freedom to know that when you suffer in life, that that's not God picking on you and that's not God pushing you around, but that is God working on you to make you more like Jesus. Imagine what it would be like to have freedom in this life that says people that have it better than you, they don't have it better than you because they are better than you. But God has been gracious to all of us. And all of us have more than we deserve. And God has been good to each of us. Imagine having that kind of freedom. That's the kind of freedom that a child of God has today. Paul says God has set us free for that freedom. Jesus says it this way in John eight thirty six. After saying in John eight thirty four that whoever commits sin is a servant of sin, he says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So how is it that somebody who has had the, the shackles of their slavery broken by Jesus, how would they ever go back into a different kind of bondage? That's Paul's worry here. He's worried that they start to accept circumcision in verse number 2, and then Christ becomes basically useless to them. Paul's saying that, look, if, if you buy into this message that, that you earn your approval before God through religious duties like circumcision or whatever Baptist substitute you might want to throw in there, if you believe that's how you earn your approval before God, eventually the things you do for God are going to start to mean more to you than the things God has done for you. Eventually what you have done is going to be louder and more important and more significant to you than all God has done for you in Christ. And you'll get to the place where you don't need Jesus at all. That's what Paul's saying. He says, if you get to the place where it's all about how hard you work and how much willpower you have and how much morals you have and how faithful you are and how much you give and what you do, eventually you're just not going to need Jesus at all. So Paul says, beware of living and dying based upon your performance and not upon the work of Jesus. So Paul says, look, verse 3, you need to know that if you accept circumcision, and he doesn't just mean the practice of circumcision as such as the doctrine of circumcision, the idea that you can earn your approval before God by being circumcised. If you accept that, then you're obligated to keep the whole law. See, the, the idea of being circumcised, that's just one tiny little part of the Old Testament. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rituals and rules and laws on top of that. And Paul said, look, you can't just pick one. You've got to go the whole way. So Paul said, beware of that. Beware of being seduced by this lie because it will consume you totally. So much so, he says in verse 4, that some of you have even been severed from Christ. You want to be justified? You want to be declared righteous by the works of the law? He said, you have fallen from grace. Now that phrase has really troubled and confused a lot of people. Because it seems like what Paul's saying is that it's possible for believers after they have been saved to fall from grace in such a way that they no longer are saved. It seems like Paul is saying that you can experience the grace of God and be in, and then you can sin in some way and be out. But I want to give you a couple reasons why that cannot be what Paul means in this text. First and most importantly, Paul's not writing this to Christians who are being bad. He's writing this to Christians who are being good. He's talking about people who are falling from grace by going further into religion, not going further away from it. Second, it cannot be what Paul means because if I could fall from grace and lose my salvation, then that means that grace in some way is about me earning and deserving the blessings of God. If there's something I could do that could cause me to not deserve the blessings of God and then lose it, then maybe I could fall from grace. But by definition, grace is the undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God. I cannot fall away from something I did not deserve. I can't unearn something I didn't earn to begin with. 
Jesus does not save us or keep us saved because we're good. He saves us and keeps us saved in spite of how sinful we are. And so I'll just make it as plain as I can to you right now. If there's some sin that you could commit that Jesus did not die for, you're going to hell anyway. There's no hope for you, period. We are saved by the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. And Jesus says that once we are in His hand, nobody, including you, will ever pluck yourself out. What Paul is saying in this passage is this. He's saying you're falling away from the message and the understanding of grace. Because you are believing that you're not saved by the undeserved favor of God. You believe you're saved or kept saved or brought further in your relationship with God by the things that you do. Paul says that is not grace. You're drifting away from grace. And here's what Paul's point may be. Not that people could lose their salvation. But people can so become so focused on their performance and their works that people can give evidence that maybe they never understood grace to begin with. That maybe they really didn't get what Jesus was all about. That they really didn't get that none of this is about our bringing our good works to God. But it's about coming to God with empty hands saying, Lord, I have nothing to give you but my sin. And I need to receive everything from you and from your good heart. Paul says, do you really get that? Do you understand that? So he says that we are not working to save ourselves. We trust in the grace of God and we are waiting for the hope of righteousness in verse number five. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now that's kind of a weird way to talk about God's work in our lives. It's not a terminology that we use, even though we probably should. I think what Paul's doing here is he's connecting back to the doctrine of justification that he talked about in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Galatians. And justification is how God declares us righteous. And finally, ultimately, our true justification comes when we stand before God on the last day, at the judgment. When God, as it were, brings everybody before Him as the judge of the universe, we stand before God, and God says... You're in or you're out. That's when our justification fully and really occurs. When God looks at us, as sinful as we may be, and we stand before God, our judge, who knows everything about us, and says, because you are in Jesus, you are welcome to heaven, you are loved, you are accepted, you are forgiven. God looks at us and sees us as righteous as Jesus. But what Paul's saying is this, that for the child of God, through the work of the Spirit, and through their faith, he says that future tense reality has kind of crash-landed into their present tense life. That what is coming out there for them one day changes everything about how they live on this day. Because there's confidence and assurance that that will happen. That it cannot change. It will not be affected. It will not be overturned. That God's verdict is settled and God's verdict is secure. That for those in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation to them. So, understand today. That according to the way the Bible thinks about our lives, the biggest day of your life is not the day you got married. The biggest day of your life is not the day you had children. The biggest day of your life is not the day you got your new bass boat or the day you retired from your job. The biggest day of your life is judgment day. Because it's then when the God who made you gives the final word about who you were. And that day determines everything about your eternal future. The biggest day of your life is judgment day. But in Jesus, God's people can say the best day of our lives is Judgment Day. Because it's there that God will say we are loved, we are accepted, we are welcome, we are forgiven, and we are welcome to enter into His presence. And yet, even though that is out there in the future, that's ours today. That's ours today. And it's ours every day. And it changes everything. But friend, know this. If you don't think about God, and if you don't think about knowing Him the way the Apostle Paul does in the book of Galatians, you can never have that assurance. 
If you don't see salvation as a gift of God by grace, you can never have the assurance that when you stand before him, he's going to accept you and welcome you and forgive you and declare you righteous. Because there may be something that you do today that changes what God will say about you that day. I mean, it may be good too. There may be some good thing that you do. Look, you came to church today. So that should make your stock go up a little bit, right? Some of y'all ain't going to be here next week though. It's real talk. And what's that going to do? It's going to start to go back down. Paul says, if this is the way we think, he said, there's no way we can have this kind of confidence. So much so that I would tell you today that there's no other way to live in this world that will give you the kind of assurance about the future than to accept the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I can embrace any other religious message in the world. And if I'm a Muslim, then there's a chance. There's a chance that I may not impress Allah. And they'll tell you that. A faithful Muslim will tell you that your good works may not be enough to allow you to enter into his kingdom. If I'm a Hindu, I may try my best, but I may blow it and I may be reincarnated as a fruit fly and get to do it all over again. That's just real talk. And even if I say there is no God, there is no religion, all that's a bunch of garbage, then all you have a hundred years from now, you're pot and soul. That's all you are. There is no hope for you. There is no hope for you in the future without Jesus. But Paul says with Jesus, there is all hope. And that's why the gospel message gives us freedom in life, isn't it? Because we know when this life is over that we are going to go to be in the presence of this Jesus forever. So Paul's able to say and drop this bombshell on him in verse number 6. He says, therefore, because of Jesus, he said circumcision or uncircumcision. He said that doesn't count for anything. He said faith working through love. That's what counts. He says it's not about what's happened to this body and the religious ceremonies and rituals I've put it through. He says it is about Christ on the inside, Christ on the cross, Christ transforming us and Christ taking us to himself. Jesus is everything. And so this other stuff may be good, bad, or indifferent, but it's not what really matters. So maybe we should ask ourselves, are we like the church of Galatia? Do we deep down believe that God's appraisal of us at the end of our lives that that's always changing based upon how we're doing. So I want to ask you a couple questions. Here's a good way maybe you can figure out if that's true. And don't, don't, you don't have to answer out loud, of course, but don't give, you know, the third grade Sunday school answer. But settle deep into your heart right now. Just ask yourself these two questions. First of all, being honest with yourself. Do you believe that there are some things that you could do today that will make God love you more tomorrow? And the second question is really just the opposite question. Do you believe there are some things you could do today that will make God love you less tomorrow? Because some of you are constantly up and down thinking that God's approval of you is always changing based upon things you're doing. And Paul says, listen, you have misunderstood grace. Grace is unmerited love that will never fail, that will never walk out, and will never change. And Paul says, if you found that kind of freedom, don't ever trade it away and go back into slavery. So freedom means understanding I'm not working for salvation. I'm waiting for it. It's done. All I'm waiting for today is to catch up to what Jesus has done for me. But here's a second principle Paul gives us. We'll move quicker through these last two. Beginning in verse number seven, Paul wants us to know that freedom means knowing that a little error goes a long way. A little error goes a long way. Now, he does not want these Galatians to go back into this yoke of bondage. So he asks them, he says, you were running well. Y'all were doing great, man. Y'all were crushing it for Jesus. What happened? What hurdle did you run into? Who, who hindered you? Paul says, this problem you've got in verse number 8, he says, that did not come from God. He said, this kind of confusion does not come from the God of the gospel and the God of the cross. 
Then he says a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And that may not mean much to us unless you like to bake. But if you know what yeast does, then that means something to you. And if you don't know what yeast does, ask your grandma. She can make this verse come alive to you. But yeast is a leavening agent that makes dough rise. And even just a little bit of that inside of dough, it changes the entire composition. It changes the entire recipe. And what Paul's saying is that as soon as we put the fingerprints of our works on the message of the gospel, then whatever we've got is not the gospel. As soon as we start to just change a few little details and say, we need to add to Jesus' work by doing this little bitty thing over here, Paul said, then you've missed grace altogether. He said, you've misunderstood it. And what you have, whatever it is, is not the gospel. So Paul sees the danger in this kind of legalistic, performance-centered thinking that the Galatians have started to embrace. And so he expresses to them his concern, but in verse 10 he also expresses his confidence. You see in verse number 10 he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul said, I believe that you're going to prove your faith is genuine. I believe you're going to prove that you know the Lord and that eventually you're going to handle these false teachers. And Paul even addresses himself in verse number 11 because some of these false teachers, what they would do is they would come in and they would preach this message with a false gospel and they would say, no, we're preaching what Paul says. We're we're just preaching the same thing. Paul says, no, look. He says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Paul said, I'm preaching the cross and that message is offensive and it's costing me. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it, but sometimes it hurts. And then he says this in verse number 12. Now put on your big boy pants here. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, I'm taking it for granted today that most of us are old enough to know what circumcision is. If you don't know what circumcision is, kids, ask your parents on the way home. They would love to tell you. So what Paul does in Galatians 5.12 is, is he makes a statement that makes me just a little bit uneasy, but he, you know, this is what the Spirit of God inspired him to write. He says, you want to go that route? Don't you want to do? He said, just go ahead and emasculate yourself. He said, don't stop with a little bit. That's what he says to them. Because he realizes how serious this false gospel is. But in doing this, Paul teaches us a couple of things about this kind of legalistic thinking where we want to brag about ourselves because we're more religious and we're more spiritual and we're more gifted and we're more sacrificial and we have done more. The Apostle Paul does a couple things. Number one, after reminding us that circumcision doesn't count for anything, but Christ counts for everything, Paul says this is what legalism does. Legalism always makes lesser things into major things. And as legalism makes lesser things into major things, eventually it makes lesser things the only thing and it forgets the main thing, which is Jesus. And that's what these people were doing. They were in danger of forgetting Christ. But we, I've seen this in churches my whole life. As people come to church, they say to worship Jesus, and they don't worship Jesus. They come to worship the way they worship Jesus. And they condemn this style of music or that style of dress in worship. And they condemn other people that don't carry the same Bible translation that they do or don't do things at church exactly the way they do. Paul said, you're making minor things the major thing and you forgot the main thing, which is Christ. And we can do that if we're not careful. And as Paul illustrates the absurdity of their belief that circumcision counts for something in verse number 12, uh, I think Paul points us to, to really see how dumb it is for us to 
think that somehow our religious effort is something that we should brag about. Especially if you understand the process of Jewish circumcision. The law of the Old Testament mandated that when little boys were circumcised, they were circumcised when they were eight days old. Now, I want you to think about you when you were eight days old. Is there anything you did when you were eight days old that you could take credit for? No. You couldn't do nothing when you were eight days old but cry, eat, and ruin a diaper. That's all you could do. How foolish then is it for these people now, 30 or 40 years removed from that, to stand up and say, I am more spiritual than you because of something my parents had done to me when I was eight days old. That's dumb, isn't it? But is it not foolish in the exact same way when we find ways to feel superior about other people? I'm more superior than this other race of people because I've got less melanin in my skin. How stupid. You didn't determine what race you were born into. Christians do the same thing. Well, you know, I've got these spiritual gifts and that proves I'm so much more critical to the work of the church. Listen, if your spiritual gifts are all about proving how gifted you are, then those things are not gifts from God. But if they are gifts from God, then that's exactly what they are. They're gifts that God gave you. You can't take credit for a gift. God gave it to you. We want to brag about our upbringing. Brag about the way our church has done things. Brag about how effective we are and brag about how faithful we are when most of us have just inherited traditions that other people work for and other people have passed down to us. In other words, we can't take credit for anything. And if we can't take credit for anything, then we have no right to prop ourselves up as if we are the bastion for true spirituality and judge other people. It's no wonder that Paul uses such strong language. As he says, if that's what you think, go ahead and emasculate yourself. Paul has no place for legalistic thinking in the church. None. But we're also going to see that Paul has no place in the church for the opposite error. As he says in verse number 13, you were called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This is the third principle I want you to take from this today. And that is that freedom means using the gospel, but not abusing the gospel. Paul understands the complexity of the human heart. And he knows that in the human heart, that if we are not trying to commend ourselves by our good works, then we are very quickly going to assume that, hey, what I do just really doesn't matter. And God has such a big crush on me that I can do anything and God's going to love me and accept me no matter what. Paul knows that people in Galatia are going to be quick to do that. And I think he would say about us that many of us are quick to do that. And Paul says that is abusing the gospel. It is abusing your freedom. It is believing that Jesus died on the cross to save you from sin just so that you could sin without consequence. And there are many people that call themselves Christians today when in reality what they believe is that Jesus died on the cross just to make them a better sinner. And friends, that is wicked. And it shows a profound and a disastrous misunderstanding of who Jesus is and how He saves. Do not use your freedom, Paul said, as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, you can't fight error with error. Just because you may have grown up in a church where they had rules about everything you did and everything you saw and everything you watched, it does not mean you can overreact against that and say, well, now there are no breaks and I can do anything that I want to. You don't fight error with error. The only way to fight the error of legalism is by preaching the gospel. And the only way to fight this kind of error of abusing the gospel is by preaching the gospel. That's the only way to do it. So Paul says, don't serve the flesh. Don't think that God wants you to sin more and that it doesn't matter just because you're in Jesus and Jesus died for your sins. That is not what the gospel says. The gospel says that Christ Jesus came, Paul says in Galatians 1, 4, to deliver us from this present evil age. 
The idea that Jesus died and rose again and transformed my heart through the work of the Spirit to save me from my sin so that I can keep on sinning is insane. But Paul said that's where many people are today. It's foreign from Scripture to believe this. That to believe it doesn't matter day to day how I live. It's insane. Don't serve the flesh. What is the flesh? I've heard a lot of really bad definitions of the flesh in my time in church over the years. Probably given some bad definitions of the flesh. But here's what the flesh really is. Your flesh is you without any outside influence. Your flesh is you left to yourself. It's your mind. It's your body. It's your heart. Just doing what you do. Without God changing you, without God working on you, you just living your life. It is you and yourself turned in on yourself. Paul says, don't abuse the name of Jesus to make yourself more selfish. Rather, what does he say, through love, serve one another. If you have really experienced grace, if you have really believed the gospel, then it's going to show up in the way that you treat other people. And this is so true, because if I know that Jesus has come to save me, and Jesus has come to help me, and Jesus has come to bless me, when I could do nothing for Him, then that should leak out into the way that I treat you. It should have an impact on the way I talk to you, the way I forgive you, the way I'm willing to learn from you and help you. But if I am self-righteous, then I'm always going to see people as little problems that are in my way. Or little projects that I have to fix. If I am self-indulgent, I'm going to need other people to confirm the sinful decisions that I make. I'm going to need other people to support me. And if they don't support me, then they are my enemies who will be thrown out of my life. If I'm self-conscious, then I'm going to believe that other people are always looking down on me. And always excluding me. And always judging me. And always thinking that I'm not good enough to be like they are. Friends, the gospel saves me from being self-righteous. The gospel saves me from being self-indulgent. And the gospel, thank God, saves me from being self-conscious. So that now, the most important person in my heart is not me. And the most important person in my heart is not even you. The most important person in my heart is Jesus. And as he's the most important person in my heart, then I'm free to actually go out and share life with people who need him. See, if my relationship with God is self-serving, then my relationships with you are going to be self-serving. Always. Always. But if my relationship with God is built upon grace, then my relationship with you is going to be built upon grace. I hope we believe as a church that we are here to share life together. I hope you believe that the only way any of us can ever experience true life is by enjoying God. That no matter what we're doing in our lives, if we're not living with Jesus at the center of everything, we're not really living. All we're doing is breathing to death. That's all we're doing. I hope you believe that you were made to enjoy God. That God is not just somebody that you have to obey. Even though you should obey Him. That He's not just somebody that you have to fall in line or else. Even though you should fall in line or else. I hope you believe that God is someone you can enjoy. And I hope you believe today as a church family that we exist to experience community together and we exist to encourage one another that the only way we can really live life is to live life together. It's not good for us to be alone. God wants us to be together, to share our burdens. You can see that. We will see it, Lord willing, in Galatians 6. He wants us to pray for one another. He wants us to run towards one another when we are hurting. He wants us to lift up one another when we are down, to confront others when we are in sin. That's what God wants for us. 
But I hope you understand that I'm never going to be able to experience community with you and I'm never going to be able to encourage you with the gifts and service God has given me until I first enjoy God. Until I first know Him. Until I first am oriented to Him on the basis of grace. I will never be oriented to you on the basis of grace. And so Paul says, this is the law. He says to a church full of people who are trying to keep the law, this is the law. What's the law, Paul? Love your neighbor as yourself. What was God doing in all the Old Testament? What was he doing with all the rules? What was he doing in all of the commandments? He was forming a people who loved one another because they loved him. That's all he was doing. He was forming a community of people who loved one another. And now the church should be that community in the world. It should be that place where people go to experience love. It should be that place where people go to experience encouragement. It should be that place where people go to experience the grace of God at work in their lives. And Paul's warning here is so strong in verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If you're always nipping at each other's heels, Paul says eventually there's not going to be anything left to nip at. 